My name's Patricia King, and today I have an exciting message for you to hear. Stop! What are you thinking? We can't make it look like Patricia King is endorsing fighting. <clears throat> Hi, folks. Uh, Chris Roseberry here. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and your financial contributions to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. And unfortunately, we don't have the the major cash resources that... Patricia King does, but we have you, our listener audience, to help uh, support us financially so that we can keep bringing this radio program to you into the world. If you don't already support Fighting for the Faith financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Here we go. It's time... Another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Monday, August twenty second, twenty eleven. And and no, there's no significance to the twenty two and the eleven and all that kind of stuff. Isn't it just weird that there's people who think that you know when double digits appear that somehow that means something? assign new meaning to it. Whenever you see double digits like this, uh, rather than, well, it's, it just means that you need to repent and be forgiven. How's that? Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. You can trust God's word, but then you're going to say, well, yeah, okay, sure, okay, I can trust God's word, but all these different people are saying different things about what God's word says. Who am I supposed to believe? Well, you know, I'm glad that you asked the question, and uh, there's a book that you really ought to uh, get a copy of if you can get it. Um, It's uh, not, I don't know if it's still in print or not, but the name of it is Scripture Twisting. 20 Ways the Cults Misread the Bible by James W. Sire. Now, uh, how long have I had this? It's an intervarsity thing. Uh, It was published in 1980, so the copyright goes back to 1980. And uh, they're basically, James Sire in this book gives all kinds of interesting ways in which people twist the Bible to make it say things that it doesn't say. As a result of it, uh, you, you always got to be testing folks, not not just uh, you know the, the the flagrant folks out there, but you got to test me. You got to test everybody. Everybody gets their teaching tested by the Word of God, and it can be understood in context. That's kind of the uh, the gist of it. You know what? Hang on a second here. I'm going to check something on Google here. James Sire, uh, twenty. 
ways. Hang on a second. I think somebody out there has uh, put together the uh, scripture-twisting uh, list. I may have put it together at one point and uh, and put it on one of my um, uh, one of my blog sites. Uh, but uh, l- let me see if uh, if I could just quickly find a quick list of the. Uh, by the way, the book's still in print. By the way, you can get uh, good to get a christianbook.com. So I'm glad to see that it's still in print. Ah, yes. <clears throat> Here's what I was looking for. By the way, I did put this <laughs> together. You know, I'm, I, you know, I might have to send this out as a. Uh, you know, I'm going to do that. I'm going to, I'm going to send this out as a PDF to go along with this edition of Fighting for the Faith. This uh, this thing. I, at one time, I actually took the uh, all twenty of the scripture twisting methods of the cults. And you got to remember, uh, you know, I I, I kind of cut my teeth theologically and apologetically doing counter cult ministry, uh, JWs, Mormons, uh, New Agers, uh, folks like that. And uh, what I've uh, one of the things that uh, anybody who does any counter cult work will tell you is is that the cults absolutely you know mangle the scriptures the problem is is that these same scripture twisting that uh, methods that have basically become synonymous with the jehovah's witnesses the christian scientists uh, the hari krishnas the mormons uh, these same things are finding their way into the christian church as a result of it uh, you need to uh, you, you need to know how to read the scripture correctly and I, I get, I'm not kidding when I tell you 95% of the time it's context, context, context. But there's other things that the uh, scripture uh, that the uh, cults do. So uh, let me let me read to you some of these scripture twisting methods of the cults, and you'll you'll understand what I'm saying. This was uh, my summary of James Sire's works. Here here's one, uh, the first one: inaccurate quotation. A biblical text is referred to, but is either not quoted in the way the text appears in any standard translation or is wrongly attributed. For example, the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi says, Christ said, be still and know that I am God, whereas the text, uh, whereas this text is found only in the Psalms. Yeah, great point. Number two, twisted translation. The biblical text is retranslated, not in accordance with sound Greek scholarship to fit uh, to fit a preconceived teaching of a cult. For example, Jehovah's Witnesses translate John 1.1 1, 1 as, In the beginning the Word was, uh, the, the word was and the Word was uh, with God, and the Word was a God. Okay, so you got uh, twisted translations. Uh, you know who does this all the time is uh, Rick Warren and a lot of the seeker-driven guys who are constantly teaching from the message paraphrase. And you, uh, you oh man, you should not be teaching from that thing. Anyway, biblical hook uh, is number three. A text of scripture is quoted primarily as a device to grasp the attention of readers or listeners and then followed by a teaching which is so non-biblical that it would appear far more dubious to most people had it not been preceded by a reference to scripture. Now, by the way, this number three, uh, the biblical hook, this is uh, that that Bible, the heresy two-step that uh, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller talks about it's the same idea so you quote a biblical passage to to create the aura the appearance that what uh that uh, what you're hearing is from the is from god and then you know the, the next thing out of your mouth it ain't that um number four ignoring the immediate context this is uh this is the one we constantly go to a text of scripture is quoted but removed from the surrounding verses from which the immediate framework uh, is there for its meaning for example alan watts uh quotes the first half of john five thirty nine. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, then claiming that Jesus was challenging his listeners 
overemphasis on the Old Testament, but the remainder of the immediate context reads, and it is they that bear witness of me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So you twist it, you take it out of its immediate context, and you can make it say anything. We see this all the time. Uh, Number five, collapsing texts. Two or more verses which have little or nothing to do with each other are put together as if one were a commentary on the other. For example, the Mormons associate Jeremiah 1.5 with John 1.2 and 14, and thus implying that both verses talk about the premortal existence of all human beings. However, Jeremiah 1-5 through 5 speaks of God's foreknowledge of Jeremiah, not his premortal existence. Okay, so you got some ideas there. Number six, over-specification, a more detailed or specific conclusion then it's uh, then is legitimate is drawn from a biblical text. For example, Mormon missionary manual quotes the parable of the virgins from Matthew twenty five one through three to document the concept that morality is a probationary period during which we prepare to meet God. But the parable of the virgins could and most probably does mean something far less specific. For example, the human being should be prepared at any time to meet God or to witness the second coming of Jesus Christ. And, and anyway, the list goes on. The other ones are wordplay, figurative fallacy, speculative reading of predictive prophecy, saying but not citing, selective citing, inadequate evidence, confused definitions, ignoring alternative explanations, the obvious fallacy, uh, <laughs> uh, the virtue by association, esoteric interpretation, supplemental biblical authority, rejecting biblical authority, worldview confusion. So. Uh, again, the the name of the book is Scripture Twisting, 20 Ways uh, the Cults Misread the Bible. And what's really strange is, is that this was a text that taught me how, you know, was foundational in helping me work in my counter-cult work. And I find myself intuitively going back to these uh, same ideas that uh, Dr. Sire pointed out, um, you know, back in 1980. So, uh, it, but it's not occurring in the cults. It's occurring in uh, <clears throat> churches that claim to uh, be Christian, which is um, rather frightening and scary, which basically means we got a whole bunch of pastors out there who ain't got the foggiest notion about the basics of sound biblical hermeneutics, uh, some stuff that you need. Now, now if you, if, you, <clears throat> if you need something quick, you know, down and dirty, how do you know what the biblical, uh, what Christianity is taught? What, how, do I, how do you know what the faith is? <laughs> Answer, if you really want to take a look at this, uh, you know, I would recommend uh, taking a look at what are called the three ecumenical creeds, the three ecumenical creeds. Um, the ancient church has, uh, has done a fine job of, uh, of protecting and defending the historic Orthodox uh, Catholic, small c, not big c, it's not Roman Catholic, but you know, universal Catholic uh, faith. Uh, from the you know f- from its inception, I mean, there was uh, there was heretics like at the time of the uh, of the apostles. So the church has always had to deal with heretics. And early on in Christian history, um, there were several uh, summaries of the scripture that were put together that summarized the Christian faith. And they are the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. If you're not familiar with these creeds, you might want to make yourself familiar with them. Um, one of the things that um, uh, that uh, my wife and I we uh, we have our we study the Bible together. That's uh, one of the things that we do. And uh, part of part of our routine is is that on you know on a rotating basis, uh, you know, one day we'll do the we'll we'll work through the Apostles' Creed. The next day we'll work through the Nicene Creed, and then the day after that we'll work through the Athanasian Creed. So 
these creeds are part of our daily devotion, if you would. And I, I got to tell you, these things are elegant. There's depth to them. And the wonderful, wonderful, wonderful part about them is, is that this is what the historic church has confessed that our faith is, the content, the substance of our faith is all about. And the wonderful thing about those creeds is, is that it's not about what you or I do. It's, it's always summarizing what God has done for us. So you may want to make yourself familiar with those creeds, not because they're on par with Scripture, but because they have been normed by the Scriptures. They are the correct summary of uh, what the Christian faith is. In fact, if you look at Augustine's uh, blistering uh, writing against Pelagius, the outline that he uses is this thing called the rule of faith. And that's really kind of, you know, it's it's the Nicene Creed. Uh, you look at Irenaeus writing against the Gnostic, uh, the, uh, the Gnostics, and uh, he, again, refers back to the rule of faith, which is kind of a, an early draft of, of the Nicene Creed itself. And so the church has regularly, in fact, you can find examples of creeds even in the New Testament. The church from its beginning has had creeds, summaries of, of uh, the primary doctrines of the Christian faith that it's subscribed to. So um, familiarize, familiarize yourself with those and uh, you're you're not gonna go too far wrong. Um, you know that just <laughs> believe them, teach them, confess them. It's it's important stuff. So what I'll do with uh, Sire's work here, I'll put together a PDF and make it available with uh, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith when we put it on the podcast, so that uh, you can uh, you you can familiarize yourselves with these twenty scripture twisting methods that the cults engage in. And unfortunately, we're seeing far far too many. Uh, people who call themselves Christians uh, or Christian pastors engaging in these exact same scripture-twisting methods from uh, supposedly uh, Christian pulpits where at least they have a, you know, a, a historic or an orthodox doctrinal statement posted on their website, but they, uh, they don't teach it. So by the way, yeah, it's not enough just to have a, a filing cabinet orthodoxy. You, do, you don't take the, you, you don't say, oh yeah, I, I believe in those things and then not teach them. Yeah, it doesn't work that way. You're supposed to pass those things along. You're supposed to believe, teach, and confess the historic faith, not just file it away in a cabinet or let it collect dust on some server somewhere on some web page that's hardly ever trafficked. <sighs> anyway, so uh, let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. I have no idea how much of this I'm going to get to. Um, let's. <laughs> the pile is huge, and I've already, I'm already, uh, I probably already got tomorrow's pile worked out. It just depends on how much I don't get to today, so I got to kind of work it out. But uh, <clears throat> we're going to start off with a, a Melissa, F <laughs> a Mel a Melissa Fisher from the Extreme Prophetic. Oh man, Th this woman is one taco short of a combo plate. Anyway, she's got a word from the Holy Spirit, apparently uh, talking about intercession, intercessionary prayer. Uh, that is wordless via movement. So we're, we're going to be listening to uh, her wax eloquent about intercession uh, via movement. Um, from there, we're going to uh, I'm going to uh, read a Spurgeon quote that was posted up on the Pyromaniacs blog that I think is absolutely worth passing along. It's entitled "Thy Word, Not That Voice in My Head, Is Truth." And uh, yeah, and then uh, I'll probably then from there launch into a the most recent post by Phil Johnson entitled. Subjective impressions, ESP, and reverse deja vu. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, it, I think worth passing along again. And then uh, uh, what we're going to do is I'm going to play a segment 
uh, from the video uh, of the the documentary of uh, Stephen Furtick's um, yeah, well, the Stephen Furtick documentary. It's it's all about him. It's not really about Jesus at all. And uh, last week I I interviewed Aaron Benziger of the Revelation twenty two twenty blogspot dot com blog here at Fighting for the Faith. And one of the things I pointed out is is that in watching that documentary about Stephen Furtick's about Stephen Furtick, it's really about him. Uh, you know, is that it's it was just bizarre to me that um, his well the story is told in such a way that Stephen Furtick. I mean, it's almost like watching the life of Jesus via Stephen Furtick. And uh, so, one of the things I, I pointed out is is that Jesus fasted for forty days. Well, so does Stephen Furtick. Uh, uh, Jesus fed the five thousand. Well, Stephen Furtick, the miracle to support him as a man of God was the dropping of the fifty thousand. That was the fifty thousand Easter eggs. And so, I found another miracle, uh, you know, alignment here. Uh, you remember the story, uh, the 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 miracle of Jesus cursing a fig tree. Uh, there's a story in one, of, in I think one or two of the Gospels where Jesus comes across a fig tree where there's no fruit, and he curses it. And the next day, when they're walking by, the the, the fig tree was utterly shriveled up and just destitute and dead and dry as a bone and gone. Jesus cursed it. Well, (laughs) in reworking through Stephen Furtick's um, video about the man of God, uh, the prophet, uh, the prophet Stephen Furtick, um, he's got a similar but even more spectacular cursing of the fig tree type of um, uh, miracle that we're going to pass along to you, and uh, and then time permitting, I'll get to the uh, an Albert Muller piece. I don't. This one's on deck. It just depends on how much time I have. Uh, talking about the controversy over Adam and Eve, and then our sermon review today. It's a short sermon, and it's a fantastic sermon. Um, if you uh, if you attend a church uh, that follows the historic lectionary or you know or has a lectionary, uh, like in the Lutheran Church, uh, I'm a confessional Lutheran. We you know we follow a lectionary. Then you know that this past Sunday, um, the the one of the most challenging gospel texts ever. Okay, like the. Uh, it's the parable of the unjust steward. If you're familiar with this parable, yeah, it is not an easy parable to work with and to properly handle. And uh, and I I, I I got wind that the uh, the pastor of uh, a congregation that's uh, out towards Ohio here in Indiana. It's in Greenfield, Indiana. Uh, pastor O'Connor there. Uh, he he preached on this and he just hit it out of the park and uh, fantastic fantastic uh, way of working the text and I think he did a great job of keeping it focused on Christ God's mercy and he the way he handled this text was just brilliant and so uh, well, we're going to pass along a good sermon today uh, regarding the unjust steward but uh, so yeah that's what we're going to be doing so. If you want to make yourself comfortable, please do. Please do. We've got plenty of ground to cover. Fuzzy bunny slippers, if the weather in your neck of the woods permits. Which, by the way, is kind of weird here. Um, let me, it's it's August twenty second, so it's not quite September, but um, today woke up this morning, took a look outside, and I went, ooh, it's starting to feel like the first twinges of fall. <laughs> you you know how like. You come out of the summer, and just as you're getting into the fall, it's like those bright, sunny days where the sun is at a particular angle. There's a particular color to it, and there's a crispness and a coolness in the air. 
Uh-huh. So I, with the first real good twinges of fall have uh, struck central Indiana, and I could not be thrilled more. And by the way, just, just so you, hang on a second here. I'm going to take a sip of my green tea. Hang on. Mm. I, I got an I, I got an email from a listener taking me to task about me sipping green tea. Now I I want you all to know I enjoy green tea. Ever since I was a kid, uh, one of the things my parents did is they took me to really good Chinese restaurants, and I got a liking for green tea. It's great stuff. But uh, one of the things you'll notice is you listen to Fighting for the Faith throughout different times of the year. I'm I'm drinking different hot beverages at different times. I am a I, I'm a seasonal tea drinker. And uh, so uh, there's certain times of the year I like particular teas. I like uh, some good black leaf teas. I I, I love uh, Earl Grey at particular times of the year. And then other times I'm like on coffee kicks and stuff like that. And and what I found is is that a lot of times what I'm drinking hot beverage wise is really kind of keyed into the weather. So um so call me a a, a fair weather tea drinker or you know or whatever. But uh, but uh, somebody said it was uh, unpiratey of me. But man, I got to tell you, I ever since I was a kid, I have loved, loved, loved really good green teas. Oh, <laughs> anyway, sorry, I just had to share. Anyway, so let's move along. Let's dive into the program proper. Ah, yes. That means we're going to be getting an update from the Extreme Profeta gang. Now, uh, we've been doing some Melissa Fisher updates here at uh, Fighting for the Faith. And normally when we do Melissa Fisher updates, we're passing along her her words of knowledge. Um, I liken Melissa Fisher to, well, you know, kind of like the Holy Spirit um, answering machine. Apparently, God, the Holy Spirit, has no clue how to get a hold of you. I mean... It doesn't make any sense. I understand that. I mean, but, uh, you know, God, the Holy Spirit, he's up in heaven. You know, granted that he's all powerful, he's sovereign, he's everywhere present and things like that. But apparently God, the Holy Spirit, hasn't got the foggiest notion how to get a hold of you. So he uses Melissa Fisher as an answering machine. And so uh, we, we from time to time, we pass along those answering machine messages that, you know, Melissa Fisher picks up via the Holy Spirit. But what a lame Holy Spirit. I mean, Serious. I mean, how lame do you think the Holy Spirit can be that he can't even track you down and tell you personally? He's got to tell you through. Anyway, <clears throat> so uh, Melissa Fisher, um, she, <laughs> um, let's um, well, this is not that kind of message uh, coming apparently from God, the Holy Spirit to Melissa Fisher. Melissa Fisher from time to time has, well, um, prof- uh, prophetic insight. Um, no, that's not the right way of putting it. Um, um, ex, uh, um, extreme imagination. Yeah, that's a little closer to uh, to how God, the Holy Spirit, apparently works in people's lives. And those of you who attend church and uh, you uh, you move around a lot, have you ever wondered why people would do that? Well, apparently, God, the Holy Spirit, has revealed the real purpose of that kind of squirmy type of movement thing that goes on in some churches. And so uh, here's Melissa Fisher um, revealing to us uh, this prophetic insight, of course, um, regarding um, movement during a worship service. Here here we go. Hey, everyone. Now, 
For those of you watching this clip, there are a few of you out there that when the presence of the Lord hits you in worship or at home, you start doing these wild and crazy movements. Yeah, I'm talking to you and I'm here to tell you that it is God. And a little bit more deeper, it's intercession. You see, it's commonly thought that intercession only comes out verbally. But what God is doing is he's manifesting intercession through you, through your body, without words. No way. How did you come to... You know what that reminds me of? When I was a kid, uh, I used to, well, back when I was growing up in the 70s, we would go to um, a skate junction. I, you know, um, roller skating was really the hip, cool thing to do. And, uh, and I just remember on many occasions going to skate junction. And um, what would happen is, is that there was, particular, there was a particular song that was super popular back then. Uh, put out by the village people that uh, well it was uh, it was all about movement um yeah hang on see if you're f- familiar with the song So uh, I apparently that was intercession intercessory prayer going on there with the <sighs> uh, let's continue with the video. Um, that was embarrassing. Isn't that amazing? Because I'm really feeling that some of you have been feeling really rejected. And you've asked myself, what am I crazy? What's going on with me? And maybe others have looked at it and said it's not God and has rejected it. Well, maybe. There's a little thing that they might be seeing. Maybe there's some discernment of some cleansing of your vessel that needs to happen. Oh, I had no idea that you can clean your vessel that way. I, I, hmm, secondary benefit I had never considered. But in all, the gift that is coming out of you, and it is a gift, is pure, and God wants to use it. And I see you absolutely moving and dancing upon injustices and things in the spirit, breaking open the atmosphere. It's going to be amazing. So I'm here to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, amazing. All right.
All right, <clears throat> moving along. Mm. Encourage you to start moving in that gift. Yeah. And let God give you more insight on what each of those movements mean, because mm -hmm. I don't have an exhaustive list, but I... <laughs> I don't even think you have a list on a napkin. I do know that it's something that God is trying to do through his people. Right. Is to intercede through movement. Right on. And so be encouraged today and lean into that gift and see the great and mighty things that God is going to do through you. Be blessed. You know what? I, I think it's probably best if I just went to our first break there. So there you go. I mean, you can do intercessory prayer without words via movement, village people style, if you like. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Someone came up to me and said, You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Do you have a copy of 30 Days in the Desert to Learn Your Purpose and to Cast the Vision to the Ignorant Masses by S. Furtick, QWZ? Uh, well, I don't know the book, sir. Uh, never mind, never mind. How about 101 Ways to Build a Mega Church and Make Big Bucks? I? Well, some American gentleman whose name eludes me at the moment. I believe his last name rhymes with Shin. Uh, no, well, we haven't gotten in stock, sir. <sighs> oh, well, not to worry, not to worry. Can you help me with the screw tape letters? Ah, yes. C.S. Lewis. No. I beg your pardon? No, Harold Wapcat. I think you'll find C.S. Lewis wrote the screw tape letters. No, no, Lewis wrote the screw tape letters with one C. This is the screw tape letters with two C's by Harold Wapcat. The screw tape letters with two C's. Yes, I should have said that. Yes, well, in that case, we don't have it. Hmm, funny, you've got a lot of books here. Yes, we do, but we don't have the screw tape letters with two C's by Harold Wapcat. Hmm, pity, it's more thorough than Lewis's. More thorough? Yes, I, I wonder if it might be worth looking through all of your screw tape letterses. No, sir, all of our screw tape letterses have one C. Are you sh quite sure? Quite. Hmm. Not worth just looking? Definitely not. <sighs> all right, how about the great divorce? Yes, well, we have that. That's G-R-A-T-E, divorce, but also by Harold Wapcat. Yes, well, in that case, we don't have it. We don't have anything by Harold Wapcat. He actually, he's not very popular. Not the problem of pain. That's P-R-O-A-B-L-U-M. No. The Chronicles of Narnia with a K. No. How about Out of the Violent Planet? Definitely not. Sorry to trouble you. Not at all. Good morning. Good morning. Oh! Yes. I wonder if you might have a copy of Perilous Landra. No, as I said before, we're right out of Harold Wapcat. No, not Harold Wapcat. C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis. Yes. You mean Paralandra? No, Perilous Landra by C.S. Lewis. That's Lewis with two S's, the well-known feminist lesbian theologian. 
No, well, we don't have Perilous Lunder by C.S. Lewis with two S's, the well-known feminist, lesbian, theologian, and perhaps to save time, I should add that we don't have Dandy Landra by C.S. Lewis or the penultimate battle by Clive Staples' Chewbacca or even Out of the Silent but Deadly Planet by B.S. Lewis with four eyes and a silent Q. What a pity. That's my favorite. Why don't you try Zondervan? I, I did. They sent me here. Did they? I, I wonder. Oh, do go on, please. Yes, I I wonder if you might have the amazing adventures of Pastor Perry Noble and his intrepid spaniel Stig amongst the giant purpose-driven pygmies of Beckles. Volume 8. No, don't have that funny. Got a lot of books here. Well, I mustn't keep you standing here, thank you. Oh, well, do you have... No, no, we haven't, we haven't. But, 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 Sorry, but, it's 1 o'clock, we're closing for lunch. I, I saw it, I saw it. What? What? I, I saw it over there, Religious Bodies of America by F.E. Meyer. Religious Bodies of America by F.E. Meyer. Yes. B-O-D-I-E-S. Yes. M-A-Y-E-R. Yes. Yes, well, we do have that, as a matter of fact. The expurgated version. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't quite catch that. The expurgated version. The expurgated version of Religious Bodies of America by F.E. Mayer? The one without the Lutherans. The, the one without the Lutherans? They've all got the Lutherans. It's a standard religious body. The Lutherans are in all the books. Well, I don't like them. They baptize infants. All right, I'll remove it. Any other religious bodies you don't like? I don't like the Presbyterians. The Presbyterians, right. Presbyterians. There you are. Any others you don't like? Any others? The Methodists. The Methodists, the Methodists, the Methodists, the Methodists. Ah, here they are. There you are. No Lutherans, no Presbyterians, no Methodists. There's your book. I can't buy that. It's torn. (laughs) I wonder if you have... um... No, go on. Ask me anything. We've got lots of book here. You know, it's a bookshop. How about Osteen brushes his teeth? No, no, we don't have that one funny. Uh, the Gospel According to Rob Bell. No, 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 try me again. Uh, I, I know, uh, Martin Chemnitz is the two natures in Christ. No, no, no. What, what, what? what? Yeah, Martin Chemnitz is the two natures in Christ. Martin Chemnitz is two... Na- huh? <laughs> yes, we got it. I see it somewhere. Yes, <laughs> I found it here. Got it. Yes, here we are. Martin Chemnitz is two natures in Christ. There's your book. Now buy it. I don't have enough money. I'll take a deposit. I, I don't have any money. I'll take a check. I, I don't have a checkbook. I got a blank one. I, I don't have a bank account. Right. I'll buy it for you. There we are. There's change. There's some money for a taxi on the wait, way home. There's wait, 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 wait. What, 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 what? I can't read. You can't read. Right? Sit down. Sit down. Sit, sit. Are you sitting comfortably? Right. Chapter one. Because the person of the incarnate Christ is made up of two natures, the divine and the human, united into one hypostasis, there follows from this a communion of attributes. Chris Roseborough here to talk about this month's perk for those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be and pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew is like a VIP walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew itself. It's fascinating, in-depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. 
When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says Join Our Crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful book. So head on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Join our crew today, and thank you for your support. All right, we're back. Warning, the people who think they're hearing the voice of God, they're just not. God's word is sufficient. We don't need the Melissa Fishers and Patricia Kings or Stephen Furtick's of the world. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith, listener-supported radio. This is listener-supported radio. We truly depend upon you your, and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already partner with us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons there, and uh, and thank you. Thank you, thank you for your support. We truly, truly can use it, especially during the lean summer months. Good night. I feel like I'm on a financial diet. Anyway, <laughs> it was the same way last August, too. It just It's one of those weird things. I, you know, I, was, I talked with Jeff Schwartz of issues, et cetera, and they have a similar uh, experience during the summer months. Apparently, it's a common thing, so... Still doesn't mean I like it because we still got to pay our bills. Anyway, so moving along here. Um... Okay, from the uh, Pyromaniacs blog, I got two things I want to read to you. One, they, they do a segment every week where they, they your weekly dose of Charles Spurgeon. And uh, Spurgeon has a, you know, he had a great point here. The, the name of the segment is, Thy word, not that voice in my head is truth. Thy word, not that voice in my head is true. I mean, if, if, if Christians just, you know, believe this, we wouldn't have the Patricia Kings and the Melissa Fishers of the world doing the things that they're doing. And I would even add to that mix the Perry Nobles and the Stephen Furtick's. Why? Because Perry Noble, Stephen Furtick, and all of these seeker-driven guys, uh, they were taught that uh, they receive a specific vision from God that they then cast to the masses. And and, and you'll notice that... uh, that actually puts them in the they 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 don't have the guts to call it what it biblically is but basically they're they're under the impression falsely that seeker driven pastors are prophets that they're receiving prophetic revelation specifically from God in the form of quote a unique vision and mission that that church is supposed to accomplish and when they plant it and the job of the pastor isn't to serve the congregation no 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 the job of the pastor is to cast the vision and then get people busy getting behind that vision to make it occur. The pastor isn't a servant. The pastor is somebody who is driving, like think cattle style. Yeah, yeah, psha. You know, driving, uh, driving Christians to get them behind the vision. It's their job to make it happen. He casts the vision. It's their job to make the vision happen. So anyway, yeah, it, it, but 
Again, the Bible nowhere teaches that pastors are are going to receive a unique vision from God that they then are then to motivate people and cast that vision and all that kind of stuff. It's just not true. And so this uh, this uh, week's uh, well word a uh, weekly dose of Charles Spurgeon I think is timely. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said, "What is the truth? There is the point. Is the truth that which I imagine to be revealed to me by some private communication? Am I to fancy that I enjoy some special revelation, and that I am to order my life by voices, dreams, and impressions? Brethren, fall not into this common delusion. God's word to us is in Holy Scripture. All the truth that sanctifies men is in God's Word. Do not listen to those who cry, Lo here and lo there. I am plucked by the sleeve almost every day by crazy persons and pretenders who have revelations. One man tells me that God has sent a message to me by him, and I reply, No, sir. The Lord knows where I dwell, and he is so near to me that he would not need to send to me by you. Another man announces in God's name a dogma which on the face of it is a lie against the Holy Spirit. He says the Spirit of God told him so and so, but we know that the Holy Ghost never contradicts himself. If your imaginary revelation is not in, uh, not according to this word, it has no weight with us, and if it is, if it is according to his word... It is no new thing. Yeah, I want to point that out. Listen again. If your imaginary revelation is not according to this word, it has no weight with us. Why? Because it's not from the Holy Spirit. And if it is according to his word, well, then it's no new thing. Why? Because we, again, this kind of goes to the whole point. All so-called prophecies get tested by the word of God. Well, if they get tested by the Word of God, then that means they're in accord with the Word of God, which means we could have come to the same conclusion via the Word of God. In other words, we don't need your special revelation. Brethren, this Bible is enough if the Lord does but use it and quicken it by His Spirit in our hearts. Truth is neither your opinion nor mine, your message nor my message. Jesus says, Thy word is truth. That which sanctifies men is not only truth, but it is the particular truth which is revealed in God's word. Thy word is truth. What a blessing it is that all the truth that is necessary to sanctify us is revealed in the Word of God, so that we have not to expend our energies upon discovering truth, but may, to our far greater profit, use revealed truth for its divine ends and purposes. There will be no more revelations. No more are needed. The canon is fixed and complete, and he that adds to it shall have added to him the plagues that are written in this book." What need of more when here is enough for every practical purpose? Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. That's right. We don't need the Patricia Kings, the Melissa Fishers, or any, or the Stephen Furtick's, or the Perry Nobles, or the seeker-driven pastors who claim that they've made themselves worthy to receive a vision from God. We don't need any of that at all, period. God's word is is sufficient and it is true and that is what sanctifies us not the inner voices of well people who've been deluded and deceived 
Phil Johnson also writing on this same topic in a vintage pyromaniacs blog <clears throat> entitled Subjective Impressions ESP and Reverse Deja Vu. Uh, here's what it says. Intuition and superstition and admonition. Impressions of on the mind are like Rorschach tests. Make of them whatever you will, but if you treat them as prophecy, that's just crazy. Today we continue the discussion of cessationism versus continuationism, true prophecy versus fallible prognostication, and sola scriptura versus versus modern charismatic prophets. I would even say postmodern uh, mystical prophets. Um, this was first posted, by the way, by Phil Johnson back on March 31st of 2007. Says Phil Johnson... Everyone has unexplained thoughts that seem to leap from nowhere into the mind. Note, when I say everyone, I mean believers and unbelievers alike. I don't necessarily mean every single individual. I have met a few uh, less than completely sentient people who seem incapable of any original thought whatsoever. They probably never get spontaneous notions of anything. Let's leave those folks out of this discussion for now. Most people, likewise, have a sense of intuition, where at times you just feel like you know a thing is true, and you can't give an account of how you arrived at that knowledge rationally. It may even seem like you have ESP or ESPN2 or whatever. It's like deja vu only backwards. I happen to think that sense of intuition is probably more rational than we can explain. In any case, I'm quite sure it's not really a supernatural spiritual gift from God because it has such a poor track record. Besides, I had the same intuitive abilities before I was converted as I as I have now. My sense of intuition is sort of like a stopped clock that was designed to measure time in months instead of hours. Once or twice a year on average, it's right. And when it's right, I, it, <laughs> it can seem quite impressive. I've I've had some moments of intuition that I could have parlayed into a fortune if I were the type of charlatan who is willing to claim he has a prophetic gift even when he knows he really doesn't. I certainly have no such gift. For the most part, my intuition is grossly fallible and ordinarily wrong. I don't trust it at all, even though my experience is probably a lot like yours. There are times when I feel compelled to follow my intuition. To be clear... I usually feel compelled to follow my intuition only when I don't have a better rational or sensible idea of what to do. Maturity has taught me to hold off on trusting intuition and to try to understand facts and reasons and the potential results of my actions before I act. In fact, I'd say that's what maturity is all about to a very large degree. But how do we understand that inner sense, especially when God seems to use it to prompt us to pray or to witness or to duck and run at precisely the right moment? Because let's be honest here, that kind of thing does happen to most of us from time to time. As I said in a comment thread once upon a time, see below, we need to regard those occasions as remarkable providences, not inspired prophecy. God might use spontaneous thought in my head providentially. In fact, as a Calvinist, I don't hesitate to say that he ultimately controls and uses everything providentially. But that's a as true of my sins as it is, as it's of the thoughts in my head. God can use them all for his own purposes. The fact that he uses an idea in my mind to achieve some good purpose doesn't make the idea itself inspired. That's the point that we're trying to make in all of these various threads about prophecy and cessationism. It's an important point. We're not we're not trying to step on the charismatic air hose just because it's fun. 
So please give these things some serious thought before you react this time. So here are four lessons. Number one, if intuition is fallible and everyone except the the out-and-out charlatan seems to agree that it is, it cannot be considered revelation, even when it happens to be uncannily right in an instance or two. Two, since intuition is so fallible and most would agree that it is actually far more wrong than right, we shouldn't make much of it. Three, those of us who think those moments of intuition of God are speaking with a private message invariably become extremely superstitious. They foolishly order their lives by their feelings. They commit the sin of trusting too much in their own hearts, and they diminish the more sure word of prophecy. No one who knows church history and no one who truly understands the concept of of spiritual maturity can deny that Christians who follow the voice of their heads fall into into those errors all the time, and it can be, and often is, spiritually disastrous. For, since our intuitive sense is grossly fallible, and since every sane biblical Christian would acknowledge that it's dangerous to pay much attention to it, we should not try to elevate it to the level of a supernatural spiritual gift. It most certainly does not resemble any of the spiritual gifts, much much less the gift of prophecy, as we see those gifts functioning in the New Testament. Right, exactly. You know, uh, one of my uh, mentors, uh, uh, Pastor uh, Bill Swirla, one of the, you know, in talking about intuition, we had a conversation about this years ago. He said, you know, my wife has intuition all the time. He says, but I don't, I don't think it's the Holy Spirit talking to her. It's just, uh, it's just absolutely biologically true that uh, women have like 20, 40, 20 to 40,000 far more nerve endings than guys have. As a result of it, they may be picking up data and able to process it uh, that guys just can't. And so, you know, but the reality is, is that we talk about the five senses, but uh, there, there may be more to our senses than just the five that we know. And uh, it, it, you don't have to believe in the paranormal or, or that God, the Holy Spirit, is giving you prophecy to realize that there's much more going on than meets the eye. And sometimes, I mean, the reality is this, is that the older you get, um, the more prophetic you seem. Why? Because um, human behavior falls into particular patterns. And what will happen is is that, uh, you know, you, you, your life experience may be such that you, are, you see particular patterns repeated. And so... You'll be minding your own business at work, and all of a sudden the new kid on the block comes up with an idea, and you already know it's going to end badly. Why? Because you've seen that pattern before. You're not a prophet. It, in, in, it just intuitively you know that this is just going to turn out miserably, and you may be able to turn that kid around so that he doesn't make the same mistakes that other people have made in, that have followed that same pattern. So anyway, the point of the matter is this. Those people who are claiming to ha- be getting revelations from God, that subjective word, I, over and 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 over again, it just ends spiritually disastrously. So um, trust God's word. The people who claim that they're getting that word directly from God without God's word, the Bible, yeah, um, yeah, things that that's a formula for all kinds of spiritual disaster and deception. Okay, moving along. Yes, that music means we're doing a Stephen Furtick update. It's Billy Idol. I modified the lyrics a little bit. Pay attention. See if you can sing along. On the of Tokyo, I've got a London town to go to. 
preaching about myself. 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 <laughs> yeah, that's right. We're doing a Stephen Furtick update, and uh, that will be our new Stephen Furtick update music. Uh, Billy Idol's Preaching About Myself. Uh, I know that Billy Idol didn't really write those lyrics, but I think that those are quite appropriate. Uh, given uh, the person that we're doing the updates about. Now, Stephen Furtick, I, before I, I get to the update proper, I, I think I need to read for you a text. If you, uh, The Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, I think is where I'm going here. And um, <clears throat> here's what it says, starting at verse 20. It says, As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered to its roots. Now, let me back up the uh, the text here. Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, verse 12. Here's what it says. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for uh, for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now, verse uh, 20, it says, As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. So, uh, yeah, one of the claims I've been making regarding Stephen Furtick's um, uh, This Is How We Change the World documentary video, it's really all about Stephen Furtick. It's not about Jesus at all. Jesus gets, I mean, like kind of a uh, an honorable mention in the This Is How We Change the World video. But uh, really, this is all about the uh, the um, the prophet Stephen Furtick, the man of God who received the vision from God. And, uh, and so... Um, yeah, what I want to do here is play one more segment from that particular um, documentary about this is how we change the world. And uh, pay close attention because uh, already we've pointed out the fact that, well, Stephen Furtick is the man of God. He is the one who received the vision from God. And Jesus fasted for 40 days. Stephen Furtick fasted for 40 days. Jesus fed the 5,000. Stephen Furtick dropped the 50,000. Jesus withered a fig, well, a fig tree, and, well, Stephen Furtick, he put Sofa Express out of business. Here's the details from the documentary. And then there was Sofa Express. So the church was growing and growing and growing. We're busting at the seams. Providence is full. Pastor's preaching four times. We've since added the Butler campus and the place is, you know, full. We're bouncing pastor back and forth. Right off of uh, 485 at Independence was an old Kmart that had since been converted to uh, the Ashley Furniture's distribution warehouse. Ashley Furniture had it. They were relocating and they were going to sublet that 45,000 square feet. Well, the location seemed to be ideal for us because it had proximity to 485. It was in between Providence and Matthews. Seemed to make the most sense. So I started meeting with a leasing agent got to the point where I drafted up a letter of intent to lease the space and actually make it our home. Everything was kind of coming together. Everything just was just going right along as planned. So we were going to tell our leaders. We were going to take them on buses from the senior center to this location. We were going to pray and we were going to tell everybody about it. We had all the plans. Larry Bride, the buses rented and uh, I went into work at 
and I got a phone call at 9 o'clock Monday morning. So I get this call from my husband. He says, Chunks just came in here and told me. So if Express is blocking our lease and we're not going to be able to get to Matthews campus. You could just hear the devastation in his voice. He went on to explain to me that the um, there was another company um, in the in the strip mall that had a no contest that they could they could um, deny any leaser. So I said to him, I said, do you want me to cancel the buses? And he looked at me. I'll never forget this. He said, no, we're not canceling those buses. We're going to get in those buses. We're going to go down to that building like we were going to. We're going to pray. Yeah. Now, notice, again, the story is told by one of the disciples of uh, Stephen Furtick. Stephen Furtick has disciples just like Jesus had disciples. So we're not hearing Stephen Furtick telling the story. No, 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 no. He's the man of God. Instead, the story is being told by Chunks and, uh, and, and, uh, and Stephen Furtick's wife. The disciples, the disciples of the holy man Stephen Furtick. They're the ones telling the story, but and see now, well, here's what's happened. The evil Sofa Express has stepped in and blocked them from getting this particular building that they want to use to build a church. For, uh, you know, the, that's going to be their Matthews campus, and and well, the evil Sofa Express has stepped in to stop that. But don't worry, the man of God, Stephen Furtick, he's going to curse. Sofa Express, and he's going to take that Matthews campus out of the hands of the evil Sofa Express, which is obviously doing the work of the devil. That's how the story's going here. He told me we're still going to have the meeting and we're going to pray. And I remember sitting on the front row of that meeting, just fighting back tears because I knew that he had to break this devastating news to a group of people who were really excited. We were there to celebrate. We're there to celebrate, yeah, that the deal is going to go through. I just sat there trying not to cry. Pastor stood up in the Levine Senior Center and said, you know, Matthews fell through. It was a little unsettling in some ways because we hadn't really experienced a big, like, stop sign like that. Man. But don't worry, Stephen Furtick, the man of God, he'll, he'll, he'll come right down on them and destroy Sofa Express. What do you mean it's not going to happen? He stood up there and he told everybody. I need every one of you to get on the bus with me. I'm going to ride over to that dadgum parking lot. But we're going to play over there now. But as soon as we heard what the next step was, we said, well, let's get in the dadgum buses. We piled everybody in those buses that didn't have air conditioning. I don't know where Larry got them, but uh, they were hot, no air conditioning. And it was so crammed with people. I actually had to sit on Dan Bancroft's lap. And so we all got on the buses and in our cars and drove, you know, it was basically across the street to the loading docks of this warehouse. We kneeled in those loading docks and we prayed that God would open the door. We loaded the buses. We went from the senior center down to Matthews to the loading dock and we had a prayer service. And we all got down on our knees on that rough gravel and uh, we just started to pray. We're going to believe that God's going to provide for our church. We claimed, God, this is what you told us was going to be our first permanent location. We're standing firm on this, that, that this was the place, and, and, and we're asking you for it. God had done everything else that he had promised, and we couldn't believe that he wouldn't do that here. We just couldn't see how it was going to happen. 
Yeah, by the way, this is Chapter 11 now in the documentary. It's entitled Promised Land. The midst of... I mean, this whole thing is told, I mean, as if the, these. this is all part of the Bible now. I mean, this is... Oh. Of all the emotions of that time where we thought we were going to have the building and then the disappointment of not getting it. Pastor Stephen was really steady. He believed that God had made us a promise that that building was going to be ours. We, we drive by this building all the time. And um, every time I was in the car with my husband, and I guess every time he was in the car by himself, anytime he drove by that warehouse, he would stretch his hand towards the warehouse and he would pray, Father, in Jesus' name, that warehouse is ours and, and, and we believe you for it. And um, we ask that you would, you would give us that back. Uh, you promised that was ours. We asked that you would give us that back. And um, even if I was talking, we would be in mid-conversation, and he would very rudely interrupt me, stretch out his hand, and say, Father, in Jesus' name, that facility is ours. And the- so he's cursing, uh, he's cursing the people who are, um, who are blocking the lease and keeping them from taking that Matthews campus, and he's stretching out his hand and declaring it by faith. It was a little bit different every time, but basically the same thing. Father, in Jesus' name, that facility is ours. And one day he came home from work and he said, guess what? And I, you know, I said, what? He said, the furniture store is going out of business. The store that blocked our lease, Sofa Express, went out of business. Not just that one location, but all 77 across the country were out of business. And it was like, oh crap, Pastor Stephen just prayed this company out of business. Okay, so, I mean, it's not just that they, uh, you know, the the Sofa Express, who was playing obviously the role of Satan in this story, it's not that just that they, you know, that, you know, they, their their grip on that lease was released. No. Stephen Furtick cursed them and all, the entire franchise, all 70-something stores went out of business as a result of the, the man the man of God, Stephen Furtick. So don't you be messing with him. Don't you dare say anything cross-eyed about Stephen Furtick because he'll put you out of business. He'll shut you down. He'll dry up your finances. He, yeah, you, 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 you are messing with the man of God. He's going to mess you up. Just like Jesus messed up that fig tree, Stephen Furtick messed up uh, Sofa Express. You know, just so you say anything against him, boom. You're going down. Uh huh. Yeah. So there you go. It's it's not it's not that Jesus is the man of God. It's that uh, Stephen Furtick is. All these miracles and the way the story's told by his disciples, not him, by his disciples, the eyewitnesses to the miracles themselves. I mean, the whole thing is is it's just a phony, phony substitute for the word of God. And from the preacher who, well, preaches about himself. Yeah, the famous words of Billy Idol there, uh, reworked by me, of course. All right, we are up on our second break. If you would like to email me regarding anything that you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Good sermon. Good, 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 good sermon. Worth passing along on the other side of the break. We'll be right back. 
When he asked Peter, Who do you say that I am? Jesus wasn't looking for affirmation. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Chris Roseborough here to talk about this month's perk for those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be in pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, is like a VIP walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew itself. It's fascinating, in-depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says Join Our Crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful book. So head on over to fightingforthefaith.com, join our crew today, and thank you for your support. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. We have a short sermon and a good one. Tough text, too. Good night. This is uh, the gospel text is the gospel of Luke chapter 16. Flip on over there. We'll get there in a second. I'm going to read it for you. <laughs> I've, <laughs> I've seen greater pastors flee from this text. It's, it requires some work to dig the gospel out of it, but man, is it there when you know what to do with it. the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Faith Lutheran Church all the way out there in Greenfield, Indiana. The pastor, William Daniel O'Connor, presiding. Kind of out in the middle of nowhere. Now, the sermon is just entitled The uh, Unjust Steward. It's, that's what the text is about. And this is one of the tougher passages of Scripture to be able to properly handle. Now, what you want to listen for is, how is he handling the text? Who is it about? How does is it works righteousness? Does somehow the steward get commended for being evil? Oh, not on your life. In fact, let me do this. I'm going to kill the music here. Although I love this version. I'm going to kill the music here. Um, the uh, Let me read the text for you. This The text is uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16, starting at verse 1. And it says this, He, that's Jesus, also said to his disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, 
What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am not, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, Well, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down and quickly write fifty. And then he said to another, How much do you owe? And he said, Well, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill, write down eighty. And the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Not his dishonesty, but for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. (laughs) Tough, tough text. This is a complicated text. So that is the gospel text that makes up the basis of this particular sermon, uh, preached yesterday by uh, the pastor William Daniel O'Connor, Faith Lutheran Church, all the way out there in Greenfield, Indiana. That's heading out of Indianapolis and heading towards Ohio out there. So here's Pastor O'Connor, and watch what he does with this. Holy smokes, this is brilliant. Here we go. Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God, our Heavenly Father, through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in the power of His life-giving Spirit. The Word of God for our meditation. This ninth Sunday after Trinity is written in our Gospel for today, the Gospel according to St. Luke, the 16th chapter, the first eight verses, where we hear our Lord tell His parable of the uh, unrighteous or uh, dishonest steward. This is our text. Please see. In the name of Jesus, your Christian friends. Last week, we began by talking about how important it is for a baseball player to keep his eye on the ball. We said it can sometimes be very difficult to do that, but still it is essential to do that if he wants to be a good hitter. We connected that to our uh, gospel for the day by saying that if we want to be a good Christian, want to make the most of God's blessings to us in His Son, then we have to keep our eyes on Jesus. This week, we want to fine-tune that just a bit by looking further at what it means to keep our eyes on Jesus. Simply put, it means keeping our eyes on God's mercy. Let's look at that now together. As we do, we return to our gospel for today, Luke chapter 16, where we hear our Lord tell a parable about a rich man who had a manager who he had to discipline for being wasteful or careless in his management of the rich man's property. It is often called the parable of the unjust or dishonest steward. We'll use the word manager today instead of steward. That's how our Uh, The translation in our lectionary words it. But we're going to look at that parable. They just kind of walk through it together, step by step. It's kind of a challenging parable. It begins with uh, Jesus saying to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him, to the rich man, that this man, the manager, was wasting his possessions. 
Communities in Jesus' day were usually quite small. You would have a village or a number of small villages banded together. So it was a rather close-knit community. People tended to know other people's business. So in the parable, you'll notice that the accusation of wastefulness against the manager is brought to the rich man by someone else. It was known in the community the manager hadn't been doing a good job. In response, the rich man said to his manager, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. In other words, hey, turn in the books. You're fired. The manager's lack of response to the rich man is very interesting. It's something that we kind of don't notice. We just read through the parable. But did you notice that? He doesn't respond in any way. The the rich man says, what's this I hear about you? Nothing. No protest of innocence. No excuse. No explanation whatsoever. He stands there. And then the rich man terminates his position. He fires him. The lack of response on the part of the manager would clue us into the fact that he's guilty. He knows he's guilty. He's been caught with his proverbial hand in the cookie jar, and he has nothing to say. But what's he going to do? What will his future be after his employment is terminated? He won't be able to find work in the community Again, it's a close-knit community. People know one another's business. They're going to know that he's been fired and why he's fired. If you lived in that community and you got a reference about a guy seeking employment that he had been fired from his previous job because he hadn't done a good job, he'd been wasteful, was you hiring? No. The man isn't going to have a job after this. He's out of work. He's also not going to have many options to, to provide for himself. As he says in the parable, he says to himself, he's too proud to beg. And he's not accustomed to hard manual labor. He says, I'm not strong enough to dig. So how will he survive? We might put it this way. What will be his salvation? Well, we see the answer to that question from what happens next in the parable. As Jesus tells us, as the man said to himself, I have decided what to do. So that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. And then he relates for us how the manager proceeded to rewrite the books in favor of his master's debtors, reducing the amount they owed him. The manager says to the first, who owed the rich man a hundred measures of oil, he said, take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. To another, who owed a hundred measures of wheat, he said, take your bill and write eighty. And then comes the payoff. In the parable. As Jesus says, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. He commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Shrewdness in recognizing what his salvation would be, what it would consist of. The mercy of the rich man. And to that, you say, what? I know at least some of you are saying that. Because I said it all week as I read through this parable trying to figure out what in tarnation is Jesus talking about here? What is the lesson he wants us to learn? This doesn't make any sense. Where would you get that, preacher? I'm not sure. 
slaved through it this week. It's a parable that's much debated, even in the scholarly community. It's hard. Scholars think this is one of the toughest, if not the toughest, of all Jesus' parables. But in looking at it this week and reading these scholars' commentaries, and in looking at it in particular with regard to the lectionary today and the propers for today, you'll notice the third word of today's Old Testament lesson is the word merciful. It speaks of God's mercy. And the third word of the collect for today was the word merciful. We appeal to God's mercy to hear us. Looking at all of that, I'm convinced this parable is about mercy. The rich man's mercy upon his dishonest but shrewd manager, and ultimately God's mercy upon us. The parable of today's gospel teaches what it means to keep our eyes on Jesus. It means keep our eyes on God's mercy. Now we can see that from a couple little details that often go unnoticed in this parable. First of all, when the rich man confronts the manager with his careless, wasteful handling of his property, and the manager doesn't respond with any kind of, you know, plead or argument or anything, any excuse, the rich man could have demanded restitution. Pay back what you owe me, what you've cost me in your wastefulness, your carelessness. You, you know, he owed him the money, whatever he'd wasted for him. And if he couldn't have paid him back by law, he could have had him thrown in jail. But did you notice in the parable? The rich man doesn't do that. He does nothing of the sort. That shows us the rich man is a generous man. He does not demand justice for the wrong, but responds to it with mercy. The second little detail often overlooked is that little word, quickly which we hear when the manager adjusts the first debtor's bill. Take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Do it quickly before word... Well, he didn't tell the guy this, but he's wanting him to do it quickly before word gets out that he's been fired. If the debtors find out that the manager is not behind the reducing of their debts, they're not going to go along with it. It would have been an illegal action. The, 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 uh, the rich man would have just reversed the debts back to their full amount. They're going to incur his wrath. It's a close-knit community. They do business with this man. He's wealthy. They don't want to tick him off. They would never have gone along with it. But this is right after he's been fired. Nobody knows it yet. They think the rich man, the master, is along in this with the managers. He reduces the debts. And what does that make them think of the man, of the rich man? That he's merciful, which they would have already known because we've already seen that from the beginning that's what he is. Wow, look at how generous he is. Look at how merciful he is. They would have praised him for this. And so you see the quandary that the shrewdness of the dishonest manager has put the rich man in. If he tries to correct the situation and do the right thing legally, he's going to have to adjust the debt back up to full amount, which is going to anger his debtors and more significantly cause them to see him in a less than merciful light. And this man wants to be seen as merciful. He is merciful. Something the manager knows and shrewdly acts to take advantage of. And so, when the master commends the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, 
He's not commending him for his dishonesty. He's commending him for knowing where his salvation lay, in the mercy of his master. He knew that the master, the rich man, would rather be merciful than right. So he trusted to him to, in a sense, to pay his salvation for his salvation, which he did by allowing the debtors to pay back less than what they really owed him. The manager knew that his master was, above all else, generous and merciful. And he kept his eyes on the master's mercy. As Christians, we are to do the same. We do well when we do. But oftentimes, we fail to. We said that last week, the reason we often fail to do that is because we often fail to live in the gospel. And we said the reason for that is we often fail to focus our attention on Jesus and his word. When we fail to do that, we fail to keep our eyes on our master's mercy. And we let the merciless world in which we live get the better of us. Jesus speaks of that near the end of today's parable when he says something very interesting. He says, the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Meaning, people of the world know the rules of the world, and they know how to play by those rules to get what they want. They're shrewd in that way. That's why the world is such a crooked place. People lie. Even decent people do that. What legal ways can I get? What can I get a shady business deal that's legal, but I can still get more than what you know? We lie. We cheat. We manipulate to get what we can as much as we can, whenever we can, for as long as we can. Right? It's a dog-eat-dog world. And you can't trust anybody to have your back because they will be shrewd in using whatever means they can to look out for themselves. That's just the way it is. That's the rules. Jesus says, why are Christians not as shrewd? Why are they not as knowledgeable in the rules of God? He's not saying we should be crooked and manipulate and we should lie and cheat. No, because that's not that the rules of God don't allow for that. But he is saying, why not be as clever? Why not be as shrewd in dealing with God according to his rules? Why not deal with him based on his mercy? The way the manager did with the, uh, the rich man. Why do we keep beating ourselves up all the time for our sins? Carrying the pain of our sin, our hurts, our guilts, our failures. We carry that around day after day and we try to answer for it ourselves and cover for it ourselves. And why? When God is merciful. God is merciful. Jesus wants us to be shrewd in terms of recognizing, like the manager in the parable, where our salvation lies, in the arms of God's mercy. He wants us to trust in God's generosity, to look out for us, even though we don't deserve it, to look out for us and provide us with all that we need. In terms of the parable, we said that the manager trusted the rich man to pay for his salvation. Well, God really did pay for our salvation, didn't he? Sending his son to a cross to lay down his life so that we could have life forever under the blessings of his reign. He paid our debts there to the full. And that wasn't right for him to have to do that. 
I'm sure from Jesus' perspective, the fact that we got off scot-free while he hung naked and bleeding on a cross to pay our debts in full, I'm sure from his perspective that didn't seem right. But what we've seen today is that like the rich man, God would rather be merciful than right. And trusting in that, we know that we will be on the last day, as Jesus says in today's gospel, received into the eternal dwellings. My dear friends in Christ, we live in the gospel by acting, as did the manager in today's parable, with an eye always on the generosity of our master. We make the most of God's blessings in our lives when we keep our eyes on his mercy. And on that note, we conclude. You know, I was talking the other day, it's yesterday, out the football field, getting sunburned, sitting there sweating. Had a break in the action, my son's football game. I turned to my wife and I said, this is what I'm going to try to preach on tomorrow. And I laid it out for her. And I said, what do you think of that? She said, you know, I'm not really sure. Because mercy's not something that I think about that often. Just honest in that. I'm not being critical in relating that to you about her because I'm the same way. And I dare say a lot of you are the same way. Our experience is that we just don't deal with mercy a whole lot. We live in a sinful world, a world that's not merciful. And so much of the time, so much of what we deal with from day after day after day is not mercy. But dealing with God, that involves mercy. That's all about mercy. Jesus tells us today to be shrewd in dealing with God as the manager was shrewd in dealing with his master by trusting in God's desire, God's commitment in the cross of his son to be merciful. And so, no matter what you have done in your lives to be careless with what God has given you, God has more in store for you. No matter what you have done to waste or carelessly misuse what God has given you, He still has an eternal dwelling waiting for you when this life is over. That is so because of His mercy. Keep your eyes always on God's mercy. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <laughs> I didn't want to interrupt that one. It, I think it kind of speaks for itself, don't you? Keep your eyes on God's mercy. Taking a very difficult passage, doing law and gospel properly in it. Yeah, when, uh, that's always a good way to know whether or not you're properly handling a text. Are you properly handling the law and the gospel? The law to condemn, the gospel to forgive, to comfort, and to assure. Well, if God is the rich master in this parable, it is absolutely true that he wants us to know that he is dealing with us not according to what he can demand of us, by his mercy, by his own son's shed blood on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins and mine. Amen, amen, and amen. You can't really add to that one.
All right. So we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Just a reminder, this is listener-supported radio. And during the lean summer months, if you could uh, remember us and support us financially, visit our website, click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. We would truly appreciate it. And thank you. All right. So what would you think? I'd love to get your feedback. You can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask me my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you and the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.